All right, Docs at Church, welcome to the live stream. We got some worship going for us today by Jesse. That's awesome. Um, guys, this is such an interesting thing. I feel like even as I'm thinking about this is we're like in the new building, right? Like, by the way, this is kind of our coffee bar area. This is some of the foyer. We got kicked out of the uh, kind of auditorium because we're getting the floors done there. So we're out here, we're live streaming. And uh, just real quick, I want to give you guys just four kind of announcements of kind of what we're doing as a church. The, the first one just really, before even all the announcements, is just go to the website, guys. We've kind of put this is like all the information we have of kind of what we're doing, what's going on. It's on there. So docsandmadison.com. Um, if you have any questions, you can find an answer probably at the website. We're doing four things, right? The first thing is what you're doing right now. We're live streaming Sunday services. We're kind of gathered around our computers, around our phones, um, kind of connected together spiritually as we're opening the Bible. We're praising Jesus together and really trying to ask God, would you say something to us this morning? So that's Sunday mornings. The second thing that we're doing is we're praying through the Psalms together every morning. And um, so if you haven't, haven't kind of caught on to this or heard about this yet, we actually started a podcast last Monday um, where we're actually just taking one Psalm every morning and kind of walking through what it means and kind of praying through it together. And so basically the goal we're, we're trying to accomplish is we're saying as we feel kind of ourselves isolated physically, we're, we're recognizing that, but saying, hey, we can actually be united spiritually through prayer. And so every morning we have a new psalm, and I just would invite you to join in that with us. Um, pull out a Bible. Monday, tomorrow morning, we're praying through Psalm 6. And if you want to like listen to the podcast to kind of get um, on the same page with us, we'd invite you to do that. The third thing we're doing every week is we're still meeting as connection groups, guys. This Wednesday we met as our connection group. It was really fun. We got to pray for each other and just kind of lay out like in a really honest way, like what are we feeling? What are we walking through? What are the things that have changed in our life since this virus has kind of affected our lives and our community? And I just want to encourage you to uh, be part of those connection groups. And if you're kind of tuning in um, to this live stream and you're not in a connection group, but you want to be more involved in this community, um, you can go to the website and join a connection group online there. The fourth thing really quick, Guys, as we're kind of seeing, we're on the front end of this virus affecting our community. We're already seeing that some of the people who are already the most needy in our world and in our city are actually the people who are being hit the hardest from this. And so we've created this relief fund called the COVID-19 Relief Fund. You can find information on our website about that. But the goal of this is basically just for us to be able to band together and say, hey, God has given us money and finances and resources that we want to be able to use those to actually go out into the world and bless some of the people who are going to be affected the hardest from this. And so we'd really encourage you guys to, like Rob was saying last week, right? Like put our money where our mouth is. Like God has blessed us. Let's seek to be a blessing to the city of Madison and some of the people who are going to be uh, most needy in the middle of this pandemic, but also at the end of it as well. And so real quick, the last thing, guys. Um, Easter is coming up. It's coming up soon. Guys, I am so excited because is death is kind of sweeping through our world. And in some ways, like the veil of just like safety and control is kind of being lifted off our world. And we are just looking at the world as it really is. The one thing that is true is that Jesus Christ has defeated death. He rose from the grave. Death is not the end of our story. Resurrection is. And so we are going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ Easter Sunday together. Probably not in the same space, but we are going to do it probably online together. And one of the things we're going to do is we're going to celebrate baptisms. People have come from death to life uh, as from hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I just want to encourage you, um, if you're someone who has that story, you know Jesus, you have become a Christian, you have put your faith in him, and you've never been baptized, 
Guys, get baptized with us Easter. We are going to figure out how to do this. We're going to figure out how to live stream it or record it or something. We are going to get together and we're going to celebrate not just the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but also the fact that people who put their trust in the risen Christ, they themselves experience resurrection and eternal life. And so, so excited to celebrate that with you guys on Easter. But we are in Acts 17 this morning, okay? So if you've got a Bible, um, pull it out. I, I don't really have any kind of fancy introduction. I honestly just want to like let the Bible speak to us this morning. As we're kind of coming to him, we're saying, like, Lord, we're, we're in the middle of a very interesting time. God, speak to us. What do you have to say? I don't think it's a coincidence that we land in Acts 17. This is a really important moment in history. And I think this is also a really important text for us. And so if you would read along with me, Acts 17, verse 16. It says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Now, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, they also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Which by the way, babbler is basically like an ancient way of saying this like second rate journalist, right? Which is apparently a very, uh, very serious diss. So anyway, what does this babbler have to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting for you are bringing some strange things to our ears and we wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul gets invited to this kind of like upper echelon of society, these kind of like cultural brokers of the day, the Areopagus, and he begins to share the gospel. He begins to tell them about this God that he's preaching about, this Jesus who has been resurrected. And this is what he says, verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live, live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And even some of your own poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. He's kind of looking at these kind of cultural voices in their day and they're saying, hey, even you recognize that there's, there's something of you from God, right? And in verse 29, he continues and he says, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. 
And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And then this story kind of ends this way. It just says, now when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. We are in this part of Acts 17 where Paul has continued to move from city to city to city and he has landed in Athens. Now Athens is one of the great ancient cities of the world. One of the great ancient cities of the world. One of the centers of like commerce and politics historically, but Athens has kind of passed its prime. And so what's interesting is though commerce and politics have kind of moved to other cities. Athens remained the center of culture for the Roman world. And at the center of this culturally influential city was this place that Paul says, it's the marketplace, right? It's actually this thing like the, the Agora. Now we don't really have things like this today, but there were three big ones in the ancient world, Alexandria, Rome, and in Athens. And this thing that we don't have today was really a fascinating thing in society because it's this massive mixing of voices of society, right? All the different sectors of business and economic, religious voices, political influencers, people who were into fashion, who were into philosophy, everyone and everything had its voice in the marketplace. This would be like if like Amazon and ESPN and CNN and the New York Stock Exchange and like all of the universities and Hollywood all came together in like one place. It was a marketplace for everything. And in Athens specific place, specifically, it was the marketplace of ideas philosophies, religions, personal habits, ways of life. And as Paul is walking around this city, it says that his spirit was provoked within him. His spirit was unsettled. The, the Greek is actually weird here. It's hard to translate. If you read different translations, they're all a little bit different. But the idea in the Greek is that his spirit was having like a seizure. It's this Greek where we get the idea of a seizure. So it's like his spirit is, is seizing within him. He's having this massive emotional visceral reaction to what he sees when he walks into the city. Why? Well, it's because the city is filled with idols. And actually the, the word that he uses here for being filled with idols is like the word for drowning. It's like Paul sees this city as drowning in idols. And it's actually a pretty fair assessment, okay? Because there's all the kind of cultural influences. They, everyone, the influencers, they bring their ideas into this marketplace. They also brought with them their gods, right? And you, as you walk through the marketplace, as you walk through the Agora, you could see them, right? If you went through the business district, you'd see kind of the edge of their little grouping. They'd have their God of money kind of set up and it'd be right there and they'd have a name for it. And you'd go to like the beauty district and just, you'd see, you know, you'd uh, see like the goddess of beauty, like Aphrodite, and there were sex gods, there were war gods, there were gods of power and success. Whatever you thought was the path to the good life, whatever you thought you could trust in and put your hope in to make you happy and fulfilled, there was a corresponding God in Athens that you could sacrifice to, to get that thing. Historians tell us that there were 30,000 public idols in Athens, like 30,000 statues that filled the city. One historian said there were more gods in Athens than people. 
And it doesn't even include the ones that were inside people's houses. And it doesn't even include the ones that were inside people's hearts, just the ones that were actually out in the world for people to see. It was a stunning spectacle. One of the greatest cities in the ancient world, the most influential place of culture and ideas. This is where so many of the great philosophers spoke, right? Plato, Aristotle. This is where all the strands of human thinking or living has its influential voice in the marketplace, the center of culture. Paul doesn't care about any of that. He doesn't care about any of that. He isn't impressed at all. He doesn't pull out his camera and take pictures of the grandness of this place. But when he walks through this city, he is overwhelmed, physically, emotionally, spiritually overwhelmed by the idols that fill the city. He doesn't see the city as overflowing with culture. He sees it drowning in idolatry. And I want to ask this this question for us, right? As Paul has this experience, the question that I've been thinking is, what is my response when I walk through my city? And what is your response when you walk through your city? When like on a summer day, as you're walking through downtown Madison on a Saturday morning, like what do you feel in your heart? Now I recognize like we're, we're like on this kind of like stay at home thing. And you're like, some of you are like, Madison. Like I had forgotten about Madison, right? Like we've been like inside our house for like two weeks and all we've done is like look at our wall and watch that like Tiger Guy documentary on Netflix, right? And like some of us, like we feel like that guy, like we've been in our rooms for like two weeks, but we feel like the guy in Inception, like the one who gets lost in like the bottom level of the dream, right? He's like lost in limbo and you know, Leo has to go and like save him. He has to remind him of the real world. Like some of us feel that way. We've only been in isolation for like two weeks. So, um, You should go outside, not with people, but go outside and see the sun. But anyway, this question, okay, this question. What happens in your heart when you walk through a city like ours, Madison? Overflowing with culture, filled with things that look like life. Do you feel what Paul feels? Now, I wanna be careful here because what I don't mean is I don't mean do you feel self-righteous judgment towards other people in the city? I don't mean do you compare your way of life and your choices to other people in this city and judge them and look down on them as foolish. That is not what Paul is feeling. That's not what this is. No, I mean, are you the kind of person that has had their heart and spirit so transformed by an encounter with God and his holiness that you would get sick to your stomach that your spirit would be overwhelmed with grief, anger, sorrow, and compassion when you see people who are made in the image of God giving their worship to something or someone other than their creator. I've had moments of my life like that, that that is not the normal way I see the world. And the reality for most of us is that most of the time, we do not see the idols of our culture the way Paul does. And, and it's true for me, it's probably true for you, is that actually most of the time that I find myself provoked within myself by the culture of our city, it is usually not out of an increased awareness of God's holiness. It is usually not out of a desire to see him and his glory honored, but it is usually after an, out of an overinflated view, overinflated view of myself and my goodness. But I want, I want you to see what Paul does. He feels this. The very next thing he does, it's, it's fascinating. Verse 17, read, with, read this with me. Verse 17, it says, so he reasoned in the synagogue 
with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace with those who happen to be there. What is the very first place he goes and preaches? The synagogue. Why? That's so weird if you think about it because the thing he's seeing is idolatry. That's what's disturbing him. Where does he preach? The synagogue. Guys, these are the people that have the 10 commandments. What are the first three, right? You shall have no other God before me. You should not make for yourself an idol, a carved image. You should not use the Lord's name in vain. Why does he start in the gathering place of God's people when the thing he is disturbed by is idolatry? It's because the idols of the city were the idols of God's people as well. It's because the problem wasn't something that was out there. It was a problem that was also in here. It wasn't just something that was happening out there. It was happening in here. The very first thing that God's people did when they were first freed from slavery and they were led to the base of Mount Sinai is they made two golden calves for themselves to worship. And then actually, as they get into the promised land, what do they do? They actually run after all the gods of culture and actually they bow down before the Ashtaroth poles instead of Yahweh, the true God. And as God's people find themselves in Athens, we can assume that like the rest of the history of God's people, they also find their homes and their businesses and their hearts filled with the same idols that fill the rest of the city. And it's really hard to have your spirit provoked within you by the idols of culture when they're the same idols that fill your house. For most of human history, it was really easy to identify what our idols were. Like it was easy to figure out what our idols were because we made them out of wood and stone, these small statues of animals or man or... And we bowed before them and we made sacrifices to them. But there are many ways to make a God. So what do our idols look like today? Well, we actually still have temples. We just call them by different names. Right now we call them the office or the gym or the library or our iPhone or the bars or our, even our bathroom mirror. And we still go to our temples and we still sacrifice ourselves and our money and our time. And now we don't bring incense and bring food sacrifices, but we all have our rituals, right? We have the right gym routines. We have the right study techniques, the right hair and makeup procedures. We have the right performance checklist for our career. We kind of have an idea if I pick these stocks, these are the ones that are gonna actually like float up in this market that is down. Religion is out of fashion, but worship isn't. All that we have done is change the names. Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, he talks about idolatry in our world, in our hearts today. And I want you to like listen to what he says, because this actually changed my life in a lot of ways, the way I thought about what I was worshiping. Listen to what he says. He says, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you, what only God can give. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, If I have that, then I will feel my life has meaning. Then I will know I have value and I'll feel significant and secure. He says there's many ways to describe that kind of relationship with something, but perhaps the best one is worship. When Paul saw this city, his spirit was provoked, it was grieved, it was filled with a depth of sorrow and pain. What would Paul feel if he was able to see into your heart this morning?
what Paul does when he sees a city filled with idols is he preaches the gospel, right? He tells people about who Jesus is. He tells them about the resurrection that changes the world. And as he's doing this, as he's in culture, in Athens, like preaching the gospel, explaining who Jesus is, the intellectual elites of the city, they start to take notice. And eventually he ends up in front of the Areopagus, right? This elite group of culture brokers, the decision makers of the city, the decision makers of culture. And I want you to see about how he begins telling them about God, kind of how he starts this conversation. Look what he says in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, right? It's like clearly you've got your religious bases covered. A lot of gods in this city. For as I passed along and observed the object of your worship, the reason I know you're so religious is because as I was walking through the city and I was observing the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. What Paul is doing here, this is what he's saying. Listen, listen, this is what Paul is saying to these people. And this is what he was trying to say to you if he was speaking to you today. He's saying, I'm not here to bring you something you aren't already looking for. I'm not here to talk to you about something you don't already know about. I've come to bring something that you have even admitted publicly and written into stone that you are looking for. That despite all your worship, despite all of your effort and your exertion and your sacrifice to all the different ways of life, all the different idols of this city, at the end of the day, your life is still out of control. At the end of the day, your life is still not fulfilled and you still don't feel whole. You still lie awake at night wondering, feeling with everything inside of you that certainly there must be more than this. And so even in a city with 30,000 gods, you feel this so deeply that you've come together and you've built an altar to the unknown God. Their city is so filled with idols that they are drowning in them and that even while they are drowning in their idols, they're still thirsty for more. Does this feel like your life in any way? It's like no matter how much you add, no matter how much you manage to get, you still feel like you need something. You need something more. No matter what you do, you still wake up the next morning feeling thirsty for something, feeling a longing within you that can never be satisfied in any lasting way. Right? Some of us, like your story is relationship after relationship, guy after guy, girl after girl. It's like you're drowning in love after love after love. And yet at the next day, the thing you long most for is love. Some of you, you spent your life pursuing power and you've actually become powerful, some of you. You are the boss. You are the one that sits at the top of your world and let you find yourself staring out the window because even though you have everything you thought you wanted, you still feel empty. And some of us, right, whether it's on this journey to the end of our idolatry or we're finally get to the end of it, some of us actually figure out that what we're pursuing doesn't satisfy us. And so we try to make this radical change. And you know, our culture is in the middle of that, right? We live kind of some of us that are younger in this generation. We've seen the way that our parents went after this idol and it didn't satisfy. And so we say, no, 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 that's not where fulfillment lies. It lies over here. So we say money doesn't make people happy. 
So we will drown ourselves in social justice. I will live my life for the most vulnerable and needy. I will spend myself to make a difference in the world. Maybe success in a big house don't satisfy you. So you drown yourself in a constant, obsessive and relentless pursuit of living your life as the real, authentic you. You give all of yourself to throwing off the shackles of our world, its systems, its norms, and you pursue truth by looking inside of you and trying to manifest what you find to the world. Athens had all these idols, all of them. There's nothing new. They had 30,000 of them, every path to life, every idea of the good life, every pleasure, every way to create meaning and purpose and value for a human life. They had an idol that represented that way of living. And yet in the middle of all of this noise, in the middle of all of this struggle, the altar that spoke the loudest was the one that didn't have an idol on it. Instead, just an inscription to the unknown God. despite having 30,000 attempts at life, false gods, their souls were still empty because just like you, they were made for the real God. Every one of us has carried that altar with us all our lives, an altar to the unknown God. The only difference is they actually went out and built the thing. And so Paul is saying, what you therefore worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. What you feel in your heart, I'm proclaiming to you that the answer to that is God. He is saying the longing that you have felt all your life for wholeness, for joy, for completion, for home, the longing that haunts you even at the height of your achievement, the lingering loneliness and ever-present isolation that you feel in the back of your heart, even when you are surrounded by the people you love, I'm here to talk to you about that. You've spent your life trying to fill that void by worshiping gods that you've created yourself with your own hands after your image. But I'm here to proclaim to you God himself, the one who created you with his hands after his image. And you were designed to find joy and wholeness and your true self by worshiping him. Now, I want you to just see how Paul describes God. He he says some unbelievably earth-shattering things in these next verses. And I want to just like read these and I want to just like summarize them for us. This is what he says in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, he does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself is the one who gives to all life, and breath and everything. And he made from one man, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries for the dwelling place. He's saying, hey, God is not just the God of Israel. He's the God of you, Athens. He is your God. And he has determined to put you here in this place. And he says that the goal of all of that is that you would seek God and perhaps find your way towards him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, right? Then he quotes his own poets. He's like, you know, God's not far off. You know that you're his offspring. You know this inside of you. And then he ends by saying this, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And he has given us assurance that this is true by raising him from the dead. 
friends, I want you to just think for a minute about what Paul is saying. Don't rush past this. I mean that for you who like follow Jesus, you believe in God, but I also mean that for you who like are undecided. You don't know if you believe in God or not, or maybe some of you are like watching this. You clicked on this from someone who posted it to their Facebook feed and you are sure you don't believe. Do not move past what Paul is saying. Don't move past this without thinking hard about what he's saying and considering it. Because yes, it is true that if this is false, it is completely meaningless. But if it is possible that this is true, if it's possible this is true, then there is no question in your life more important at answering than this one. Because if this is true, it is a reality that defines everything about our world and everything about who you are and what your life is about. Nine things, he says. And you're like, nine things, it's gonna take 45 minutes. No, rapid fire, okay, rapid fire. One, this is what Paul says. There is a God and we are not alone in the universe, right? The Epicureans, they were like, everything is atomistic, it's material. There is no outside thing. Yes, we feel haunted by that, but it's just kind of part of this process of our material world and our minds, but it's not a real thing. Paul says, no, there is actually a God. We are not alone in the universe too. This God created the world. He made everything in it, including you, three, He is Lord of heaven and earth. He is not just Lord of heaven as though he has control of that realm and this realm is uncontrolled and unknowable and chaotic. No, God is Lord of heaven and earth. He is sovereign. He is in control. He is powerful and his voice speaks and he acts in the world. For he is not able to be manipulated and controlled by you. He doesn't live in a tiny house in your bedroom. He doesn't live in the temple like the rest of your gods. He doesn't need food or sex or money. So you can keep your daughters. You can keep your money. You can keep your food. Give your food to the poor. Give your daughters to good men, right? Give your money to someone who needs it. I don't need those things from you. You can't control him and manipulate him because he needs nothing. Instead, he is himself a fundamentally self-giving being. Five, he is the one who gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. It means that every single good thing in your life, everything in your life, you did not earn that or win that. It means God gave it to you. Even your breath right now, he is putting that in your lungs. Six, he is not far from us, but we are his offspring. It means that he is not made in our image, but we are made in his. Seven, He commands that all people everywhere repent, right? God is not abstract and so distant that you cannot find your way to him, but no, he is near, he is present. And the Bible says that all who seek after him with a truly humble heart, the door will be open to them. Those who seek find, those who knock, the door will be answered. And he commands all people everywhere to repent. Eight, he has fixed a day where he will judge the world by a man whom he has appointed. And nine, He has demonstrated that all of this is true. He has given us assurance that this is true by raising Jesus from the dead. It means if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, all this could be a lie. But if Jesus raised from the dead, it means that all of this is true. The reason that Paul got stoned and persecuted and run out of almost every town he went into, it was because of the kind of God he was proclaiming, right? The gods of Athens, they were small gods, right? Even though they were seen as powerful, they were controllable. 
with enough sacrifice and doing the right kinds of things, you could get that God on your side. You could get that God in your debt and you could get those small gods to give you what you wanted. But the problem with a God who is completely self-sufficient, who has no needs, a God who isn't able to influence one part of the world, but a God who is over all of the world. The problem with a God like that is that you can't control him. But also for Paul's God to exist, for Paul's God to exist means that you are not the one in control at all. For this God to exist, it means that you aren't a self-determined individual. It means that you can't control your own destiny. It means that you can't make yourself into whatever and whatsoever you please. But it means that your life, it means that every single breath you breathe, everything you have, everything you are, everything you know, it is his. It is defined by him. He owns it. He controls it. It means that you don't decide if you take another breath, he does. It means you don't decide and determine whether your lungs will be strong enough to survive this virus, he does. And the problem with a God like that, a God that isn't formed or controlled by our hands, but a God that formed us with his hands, a God who isn't bargaining with us, but a God who has purchased free grace for us at the cost of his life, The problem with a God like that is that he would have the right to lay claim to all of us. Every part of us, all that we are. Abraham Kuyper, he says it like this. He just says, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ who is sovereign over all does not cry, mine, mine. Because we are living through a moment in human history that will not let us pass by on the other side. All right, so many things that happen in the news, so many things like these cataclysmic things that happen, they're always happening seemingly like somewhere else or in someone else's life. But it feels like what God has done with this is he has just broadened out the reality of the world so that everything you're seeing on the news is also happening here. We're living through a moment in history that will not let us pass by on the other side. Rarely does history, rarely does the world come to such a full and complete stop as it has in the past weeks. Rarely we are able to see the world as it truly is with such clarity, right? Death has always been real, but rarely do we feel it and see it so clearly. Our world has never been in our control, but rarely do we ever feel that as presently. Our idols can never actually save us but normally we don't feel how powerful they are not until they're taken away from us. Our lives, our world, our systems, and our countries, they're being overwhelmed by something that is in itself completely insignificant, something that's smaller than a human cell. And one of the things we are feeling right now is our fragility. And as the world slows down, and as the noise of our shops and our marketplaces, they have become silent, I believe that one of the things we are supposed to do is stop and listen. Because if anything seems to be true in this moment, it seems that God is trying to say something, that God is speaking. 
It wasn't that he wasn't speaking before, but usually our lives are filled with so much other noise that we just can't hear him. And so it seems like part of what God is doing right now is he is clearing off some of the idols off our table. He's clearing away some of the noise of our lives so that we would stop and we would listen and say, God, what are you trying to say? This altar in the middle of the city, the altar to the unknown God. Do you know when the people of Athens built this altar? It was during a plague. That's how the story goes. The story was that there was a plague, a virus that was ripping through Athens and no matter what they did, they couldn't stop it. Many people were dying. They had their lives stripped bare and they were exposed to a world that wasn't in their control and their idols were exposed as not being powerful enough to do anything against this. And so they assumed that the gods were mad, right? And so they made sacrifices. They gave everything. And at the end of the day, no matter how much they sacrificed, no matter what idol they worshiped, the plague didn't stop. And so they're very superstitious, right? They're these religious people. And so they assume there must be another God somewhere that we don't know about who's truly in control of this. And so they ended up setting up these altars to the unknown God. And according to the story, as they do this, the plague stops. Now, we don't know how much of this is historical. We don't know how much of this is legend. But I don't think it's a coincidence that this is our text today. this altar, this longing and void that was inside of them. They didn't build it when their marketplaces were filled with noise. They didn't build it when their idols were seeming to work for them and bring them the hope and comfort they wanted. They built it when all of their idols had come crashing down as failures. They built this when the plague and death was sweeping through their city. That is when they realized that their idols had failed and they needed something better and they built this altar. We live in a world like that today where for many of us, that's what you feel. You feel like the hand of God has come into your life and it has swept everything off the table. Your plans, your career opportunities. Some of you have lost your job. Some of you, you don't know what the future holds from you. Our plans, the things we've put our hope in, the things we have put our trust in. If we had our trust in idols, all of a sudden we feel very nervous, don't we? And I think there are times in history where our, no where our lives are loud enough and noisy enough that God's trying to tell us something. He's trying to speak to us, but we just don't hear him. We're not listening. And there are times in life because you have a God who is a father who loves you, that he will clear away the noise from your life so that you can finally hear him. And you could listen to what he's saying. Because God loves you enough that he's willing to actually maybe wreck the next two weeks or two years of your life in order to save you forever. Oftentimes, it's hard to know what we're holding on to until someone tries to take it away, right? It's hard to know what you're holding on to until all of a sudden someone tries to take it away and all of a sudden you feel like, oh, okay, well, I'm, I actually really don't want to let go of this hope. Some of you, you're feeling that right now. It would seem at this moment in history that God is speaking. He's trying to say something. The question is, are we listening? 
Let's be people that listen to whatever it is he's trying to say. Would you join me in prayer? Father God, I feel my heart exposed by your word. And God, I felt like as this moment in history was crashing into my life, I felt myself like clinging onto one thing and then you took that away and then I felt myself clinging to another thing and then you took that away and I felt myself clinging to another thing and then you took that away and it just felt like finally I was sitting in my life with all the things I was trying to put my hope and my trust and I was trying to find joy in and those were just completely swept off the table and they were gone. And so God, I, I feel ready to listen. God, whatever idols are in my life, whatever idols are in our hearts this morning, God, we just hold them up to you. We let go of them. We say, God, whatever you're trying to take away, whatever you're trying to change, whatever you're trying to do in our lives to make us more like Jesus and less like us, Jesus, please do that. We want to hear from you. Amen.